Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of Network Collective. On today's episode, we've assembled a pack of passionate pontificators to talk through disaster recovery and resiliency strategies, specifically focusing on the network because we know that's what you really care about. You have about 10 seconds to settle in, set your Tesla on autopilot, and get yourself ready because we're about to get started. Before we jump into today's topic, we want to thank Cumulus Networks for sponsoring today's episode. Cumulus makes the world's most flexible network operating system. We'll be hearing more about them later on in the show. Um, so guys, we have multiple levels of redundancy that we want to talk about today. We have redundancy within a network system, within the box itself. We have uh, redundancy within a single site, and then we have redundancy between sites, multi-site redundancy. I think it's worth noting on this show, and this is going to irritate Russ, so this just makes me so happy, um, <laughs> that, that, we're, that we're approaching this episode specifically looking at like the corporate or enterprise environment. That service providers, I know, Russ, yes, I know. Um, <laughs> service providers, web scalers, their resiliency strategies are probably going to look a little bit different, although there may be some things that are applicable, and I'm sure Russ will point them out if there are. Um, as we get there, but let's just, you know, keep that in mind. That's what we're talking about specifically. So we're going to start with Jody um, and we're going to start specifically on intra box resiliency. What are some things within hardware systems um, that can provide that level of, of redundancy or resiliency uh, to keep the box itself online? Oh, we've got a bunch of things that we can look at there. If you go to the older stuff uh, where the original chassis designs came out, you had redundant supervisors, redundant power supplies, fast failover across the backplane. Uh, later on, we started getting into things like stacking switches and things that could handle having the redundancy taken care of outside of a single box. But the principle's always been pretty much the same. Yeah, so sure. I mean, we're talking about you know, both hardware and control plane resiliency, right? I mean, is that mm -hmm. what we're, we're yeah. talking about here? So, I mean, all the way down and not just in, in from the hardware, you've got power supplies, you've got supervisors, you've got line cards, you've got fans, you've got fabric modules. There's all kinds of components when we talk about a switch. Mm -hmm. um, servers, I don't think are very different, right? I mean, not that we're you know focusing on servers, but servers, same type of ideas, not supervisors necessarily, but from a resiliency standpoint, they have the same type of idea. You have these modular hot swap, things that you can drop in and out as need uh, or as need be. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how much more there is to talk about it. Like if you're talking about within a box itself, Russ has some comments, I can tell. Well, oh, and Pete does as well. Pete's raising yeah. his hand. So, well, I was just going to say what... Um, <laughs> Russ says no, by the way. Would <laughs> right. you say graceful restart and the ability to back up your fib on a, on a backup table or having a dirty fib and a clean fib is something that's intro box that might be interesting to talk about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, the, I mean, we're starting to dig into the weeds and we like doing that. So let's do that. Right. So on supervisors from a resiliency perspective, right, that's what you're talking about. The idea of being yeah, able right. to swap between them, because it's not just the fact that there's another piece of hardware there to take over. It's the fact that it can take over rapidly and gracefully. And maintaining state and in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's where I'm going to challenge Russ, because I view that as complexity. You have to, uh, Well, and now, to, I was going to say, when you get into chassis systems, you get into complexity that most hyperscalers don't want to have anything to do with. We don't right. use systems. And this question came up in a practical setting for me last week. Somebody was dead set on having the big chassis with the dual sleeves. And my question was, wouldn't it be better to have two single chassis? Maybe they're less power, you know, single, dual power, don't really care. But single suit and two chassis, um, you can ride it out, you can upgrade one where 
while um, you don't have to, while the other one continues running the existing code, stuff like that. I'm saying the two protocol. points of failure. <laughs> so, so, but, but Pete, Pete raises actually a really important point, I think, with almost every single attempt at resiliency and, and backup um, is every time you introduce another level of resiliency, you almost always add another layer of complexity on top of that. Um, worse, not every layer of complexity plays nicely with every other layer of complexity. So a dumb example was uh, a place I was at that was running OSPF with timers set to one-second hellos so that they had fast failover should there be a router failure. That's fantastic. We also had nonstop routing enabled. Well, the problem with that is that you know, nonstop routing means that if the device crashes, it comes back up and everything. All the neighbors are supposed to hold the state and say, I won't mark you down yet. Well, after three seconds, they've missed the hellos and go, nah, session's dead. This was supposed to be highly resilient, right? But we've now got two resiliency protocols fighting each other um, and no one you know, who thought, who thinks through how they play together. I think that's always the problem, no matter whether it's, you know, graceful restart or it's nonstop routing and the, this idea of, you know, anything where you start using another protocol, you just add another, potentially another nail in your coffin. You've got to be very careful. I love well, that example. It's, I think it's got to be in about seven of Russ's many books, uh, but it's one that I keep running into in the field is people um, misunderstand the, uh, non-stop forwarding and how that interacts with um, you can be fast or you can be smooth, but you can't kind of do those. <laughs> right. And, and what we're talking about here, and I mean, to, to kind of word it differently, a little bit differently than John, but it's the same concept is that when we stack complexity, it's interaction services. So the idea is we, we have these different things that all are operating independently and which, and, and, and really to make this system. Well, we, we, we think they're operating independently. Well, they're, the, they're in, the, the, yeah, they're not coordinating their state right, be, right. between protocols. We want them to act right. in concert, but the only way to do that is by configuring them in such a way that they actually do, which requires a high level of understanding of exactly what's happening under the hood, which isn't really all that common um, to understand. Like the example that was brought up, you know, nonstop forwarding and hello timers. Like, I think it's a mistake that could easily be made. <laughs> not understanding how uh, NSF works, yeah. right? Like you're just, you're just not fully understanding. Now, if you did, then obviously you'd look at that and say, okay, yeah, okay, these two things are going to work together. But, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting point, um, especially with complexity. Now, does, does distributing that complexity help? And so I asked that because I just, I just, I had a very interesting interaction. I wrote an article about a case against chassis switches, not because I think chassis switches are bad, but it was here, here are some of the things that you should consider and some of the, what may be the negative, you know, uh, implications of running a chassis switch. And I got some of the harshest feedback I've ever gotten on this specifically about the idea that it's all within one box. And my thought, you know, kind of the alternative was the idea is, okay, what if we had like a distributed network fabric? That's like the in vogue thing to do these days in data centers. Right. And, um, and you have many control planes, operating in a distributed way, but doesn't that present its own complications? Um, well, it does, it does, but it's not hidden from the operator at that point. Like, mm. it's more complex in some ways, but I can actually see it. Whereas with a chassis switch, it's kind of, as an operator, it's kind of hidden from me. It's a black box, in theory. It's abstracted? That, yeah, that works, in theory. Well, <laughs> well and, and I think you're also taking... The, the classic kind of pair of chassis and resilient core of your network. And now you're saying rather than having 
one-to-one one resiliency between two chassis, I'll put 16 chassis in. And if one of them goes, eh, I still got 15 work with equal cross paths and everything. You know, this is the big win for fabrics, right? It's the same as servers now. I just throw more throw more servers at it or run more containers and I just scale up my network. And, it, and every time, it's it's your resiliency is kind of going up implicitly. Uh, touch wood, as long as your protocols don't mess everything up. But at least from a physical hardware perspective, if one switch dies, who cares? Well, that's fine as long as it fails cleanly, binary up down. If it's kind of misbehaving and tossing fifty percent of the packets, and the others don't re- have a way to react to that, now it's this not so good. This is a great point because when we talk about resiliency and failover, it's almost using the example of the fact of a blackout. That something completely goes down. I mean, it, it, just to be bluntly honest, we don't have a lot of great mechanisms to detect like gray out scenarios, like what Pete just yeah, brought up. Failures. Yeah, the idea of it's dropping 25, 50% of the packets. Not enough to make the, the protocol fail, but enough to make your life painful from a traffic perspective. We're really good at link quality detection. We're not really sure. At link up down detection, we're terrible at link quality detection. Right. Yeah. That being, that being the problem. Yeah. And so, yeah, distributed fabric or chassis, well, it has has the same issue though. There, it's not it's not necessarily the architecture or the the mechanism. It's the idea that if I have a supervisor that's malfunctioning, now the, where the fabric I think has a, a slight advantage in this is that if you have like a, a leaf spine ECMP fabric, you might have four potential paths the traffic is going over. If one of those paths is dropping twenty five percent, then you know. Great. It's a small. Well, no, it's actually it's actually worse. Because why, why is that worse than having a single supervisor that's dropping twenty five percent? Well, because I can't trace the traffic across the fabric necessarily. Right. So the the troubleshooting complexity is higher. Which which spine is actually causing the issue? But the actual amount of traffic that's impacted is less. Right. Because we've yeah, distributed we've distributed our control plane across the top of the spines, our data path across the top of the spines. Let me get that terminology correct. And so the data path is now distributed rather than going through one particular device or that control plane managing all of that traffic, it's, it's now spread out. And so because of that, there's a, there's a distributed effect both from a, you know, the amount of, of traffic on the wire and the amount of traffic that can be impacted by one malfunctioning control plane. Well, adding to uh, John's statement, where as you add boxes, you gain more resiliency. But with something like a leaf spine fabric, the more boxes you add, the less impact it necessarily has on your system. So at what point do you realize you really have a problem? That's what I was going to bring up because I ran into a case where a colo provider had one bad path out of six, as revealed by an external polling device that's well-known to the audience, I suspect. Um, but the, the carrier hadn't detected the problem. Because apparently they were ping-based or who knows what they were doing internally to monitor. Uh, our suspicion was it was core distribution within the co-op. Yeah, well, there's actually, there's actually a, a white paper written or a research paper written by Microsoft on this, if you want to go look it up, on gray failures in spine and leaf architectures. And when you start getting 10,000 routers in a single data center, what this, what the problem, the, the, the law of large numbers takes over at some point. And you're going to have a failure, effectively. You're, if, if 10% of your, 1% of your boxes have a gray failure, then you have 10,000 boxes, you're going to have 10 gray failures, or whatever the number is. So, the other thing that comes, comes up with uh, resiliency here is people seem to um, sort of knee-jerk assume that you want, boom, failover. In fact, sometimes that's counterproductive. Um, mm-hmm. 
the, I can't really think of a good network example, but um, well, no, 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 no. Well, you can, right? Why do you have Why do you have exponential backoff in ISIS and OSPF? Right. Why do you have route fab dampening in GP? It's mm. because speed of convergence is actually directly contrary in many situations to network stability. If you converge fast enough, you form a positive feedback loop, and everything falls down and goes boom. Or thinking occasionally other flaps doesn't mean that you're down. Yeah, right. Well, and, and also, it's the same reason you have a delay on HSRP, right? Or yeah. VRRP before something takes over as primary again, because otherwise things can flap all over the place. You, you want to be sure what's going on before you restore a path. So you want to be stable, and it does impact other things. Like if you have a database and you're going to fail over the database, if that's somehow automatically triggered, um, you don't want to react too quickly if the database uh, replication has to be redirected in the other direction or um, somehow switch the master copy. Is, is this a, a, a good opportunity on the failover front to talk about never ever doing a stack of anything ever? <laughs> so, so, so John, I'm just, I'm just going to point out that the, the, the primary person who really pushed back hard on me uh, basically was, was, using stacks as the example as the alternative so anyway go ahead and, and i want to hear why why you think not to stack anything ever uh, only because we're back to this is is i guess is having a distributed control plane better than having a centralized one and a stack ultimately okay i know it sort of pretends like you know your stack of seven switches really is seven control planes it's just one of them's active at a time but uh, who, who here has had a stack go absolutely nuts on them and screw the whole stack oh yeah right I mean, I've I've had you know devices fail, but for some reason, you know the the active soup doesn't fail over. Um, I, I've had other other things where for some reason one device has come up, decided it's master, even though it doesn't actually hasn't put a config in yet, and then duplicates that blank config to all the other members in the stack, and it's that whole problem again of you know it's total failure because something went wrong rather than a partial failure because one node went wrong in, in, you know, in an area. So I, I've, I've been burned enough by chassis, by stacking switches now uh, from multiple vendors that I just run screaming. Good point. And uh, the stack has sort of electrical dependencies. The alternative that's coming to mind is VPC on Nexus. And I've seen some issues there because if the true uh, link gets screwed up, your control plane is basically broken. And it can be kind of painful figuring out what it's unhappy about. Well, yeah. and, and the same with VSS you know, as another technology. You know, it's trying to make two chassis into one with a with one magical control plane. It doesn't always work. And so I've heard of cases bad. where with VSS where one of the soups went uh, kind of brain dead, but failed it failed to happen. Yeah, it's that that to me VSS to me. It's very clever and it's very convenient, but it just feels like another attempt at a stack, which makes me proud. <laughs> it's a side-by-side -side stack? Yeah. Out of chassis experience? <laughs> so, I mean, speaking of VPC, I think this is worth noting, right? Like VPC is an attempt at trying to fix that issue because it is actually two separate control planes that are trying to act in concert, mm -hmm. right? So, so rather than a stack model where you have a single control plane that is operating with the idea that if that control plane fails, it fails over to the other one that could take over for it. Uh, a VPC in the Nexus line is specifically about, I have these two switches, they both are operating independently and we share state so that we can act and, and respond to particular types of traffic uh, in something that makes me look like a single switch, 
Um, but the, the problem with that is that it adds so much complexity to such regular protocols on the network that it, it, it introduces its own problems. And so I would say, you know, Pete's example of, of uh, peer link failing, it actually has a really solid mechanism for handling a peer link failure if it's a full failure, right? It essentially just shuts down the control plane for everything that's VPC enabled on the other switch and just says, you're just not going to play now, okay? Um, which yeah, is... But what, if, but what if you get a great failure in the optics between the two switches? That, that's that the issue, <laughs> right? The issue comes down is now I have dead peer detection all of a sudden matters a whole lot more than what it does on a VSS, although it still matters in VSS. What I'm saying is now all of a sudden, if these two are acting in a split brain scenario, uh, that can cause, it just brings the, melts the whole network down. And well, so- you can have orphaned VLANs and devices yeah. that are on the second switch and yeah. then they can't talk. Um, yeah. Nexus VPC, I think, is one of the most un misunderstood or under-understood concepts uh, in networking. I see it messed up all the time. Well, like, and it's not just localized. Their domain idea is one of the subtleties. Um, yep. If you duplicate that, you are really in the hurt locker and your entire data center is down. Absolutely true. So guys, we kind of naturally transitioned into intra-site. So within a site, we're talking about now uh, fabrics. We're talking about multiple core switches. We're talking about uh, multiple core switches acting as one switch. Um, so let's let's just kind of segue there. What are some other things within a site? Now, we've we focused a lot on the network technologies, but I'd actually like to take a step back. What are some of the fundamental things in a, in a server room, in a data center, in a closet? What are some things that matter if you want to keep that thing online? Access control. <laughs> John, John's first response is the fact that don't let anybody in. Don't let anybody touch it. That's right. Meantime between mistakes. <laughs> I have actually seen scenarios. Go ahead, Jody. I've actually seen scenarios where people have zip tied underneath the tabs of RJ45 cables to make sure no one yanks them out of the switch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I hate to say that the physical thing, not all joking aside, is is quite serious. It, it's that there's that stupid thing about someone shutting the door on a fiber, you know, shutting the cabinet door on a fiber and pinching it. Yeah. Um, but uh, beyond that, I mean, at a data center level, if I'm looking for a data center, you know, if I'm looking for preferably someone else's, if I don't want to have my own, you know, I, I'm hoping to get power from two two different companies, hopefully who take a diverse path into my building. My WAN circuits, I probably want two providers if it's one provider if i have to i still want them coming in different entry points i want to know that they don't end up in the same conduit so that the same backhoe can take both of them out quarter of a mile up the road you which know, has I, actually happened on multiple occasions uh, yeah I've, it's I've pretty common actually <laughs> yeah it is it, it's I, and, and or even one where you discover that actually the last mile that from your second provider was actually resold from the first provider. So yeah, actually you have no resiliency. Again, half a mile up the road, they come back to the same box. Yeah, um, so people are so, sort of tuned into uh, fiber diversity. The one I've seen um, is that people don't pay attention to their electrical within the racks and within the uh, cage. And um, some of the best data centers I've seen, people take electrical tape and put red and blue and they do it for uh, the uplinks as well. So if you're going to two distribution or four switches, red and blue, everything's red and blue, and you can mark one eyeball everything and see if it's screwed up. Um, lots of sites that don't do that find out that somebody plugged everything into one power supply, one PDU, whatever. And Murphy's Law says that's the one that will fail. Very well. 
you kind of hit upon just a, you know, I think a very fundamental thing, even stepping back from what it is, and that is that nothing should be connected to one thing. <laughs> like that's the rule. Whether you're talking about power, whether you're talking about network, whether whatever it is that you're talking about, if you only have one of them, it's not resilient. And I know that sounds really fundamental. I know, I know it does. It sounds really, really super simplistic. But the number of people who think that having a chassis, a single chassis, and they plug into that one chassis is resiliency, it is to some degree. The chassis switches are built to be resilient in and of themselves, but things go wrong, right? Now things, okay. right. And so things tend to not go wrong. Well, let me think about this for a second. Things do go wrong uh, in, in, in concert and coordination when it's a protocol. But the idea is, you know, I don't tend to have two hardware things fail at the same time. And so a very fundamental point is yeah. to, to have that redundancy. And so when you talk about, uh, topper rack switches. Don't install one topper rack switch. Install two. Like, like, just don't do one. If you're going to do core switches, don't. I would much rather have. If we're talking about the chassis model, uh, I'd much rather have two single suit, single power supply chassis than I would yep. one with dual yep. power supplies or four or however many it requires and dual soups. I want them separate. I want two. Totally Does anybody? Agree. Does so anyone maybe we could call this the power of two. Power of two, that's a good way to put it. Or more, depending on what your model is, because the fabric, right, obviously extends out even beyond that. John, what were you going to say? I, I was going to ask if anyone here has not had a backplane on a chassis switch fail. One time. It hasn't happened a lot, but it's happened to me. It only has to happen once. Yeah, it's a really bad day. And, and, and this, oh. my point is, back, this is back to the, the chassis switch problem, right, is you, you load it up with more and more line cards. You might put service cards in there. Maybe you want to load balance or firewall and everything, and you put everything, your dual soups and your quadruple power supplies. If the bad plane goes, that's your single point of failure. And I, I've had it happen on multiple models. Again, multiple vendors, same problem. But... So Just, moral, moral of this episode is don't let John ever come to your network. Don't let yeah, him in your closets. Don't let him next to your chassis. Just don't let him touch your stuff. He's There's the one. He's the one. Yeah, he's the one you need physical security for. It's John. I was in Cisco Tech. I was in Cisco Tech for many years, and I can tell you that's much more common than you think it is. What, the, the backplane failure? Backplane failure. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that okay? So, I mean, we there's an episode coming out where we're talking about kind of like the advancement of of uh, hardware switching and some of those things. Is that I mean, a back plane and a mid plane? Those are we're kind of substituting those with fabrics now. Is that as true now as what it was when there was a single back plane, or is it still a? Because I, I think it's more so now than it used to be. Because when we were working on switches in the old bat, bad old days, they were passive backplanes quite often. The crossbars and stuff were passive. They were just cables, yeah, essentially. They yeah. were just cables, right? Exactly. And all the real switching on the backplane for like a crossbar was done on the line card. So you plug a new line card in, it has its own switching stuff, and there might be a brain in there someplace. But by and large, the the, the backplane is passive. Today, all of those fabrics are spine and leaf. Yeah, inside. You have a, yeah. Inside, you actually have a spinal leaf. And so you have switches inside your switch on your back plane. Ooh, Inception. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a uh, funny failure mode on the old Cisco 6509 chassis. And luckily, this was in a lab for but a whole bunch of them were having serious failures, intermittent problems. Cisco SE took one look at it and said, oh, you didn't RTFM. You put the rails in wrong. If you don't put the rails in the right way, excuse the chassis just enough so that the line cards don't seat properly. Oh, jeez. 
Okay. <laughs> wow. That's rough. Okay, guys. Yeah. I think this is a good point. I think I need a break. So let's, 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 I want to take a minute and just talk about our sponsor. So sponsoring the episode today is Cumulus Networks. Cumulus is doing something really quite innovative in the networking space by extending the Linux operating system rather than starting from scratch on something new and proprietary. They're empowering companies to leverage the operational experience they already have in managing their Linux server environments. Now they know that not every network engineer is someone who manages Linux day to day. So they've written a number of tools uh, that will help you administer these systems and build these systems in a way that's more comfortable and more familiar with what you're used to. On top of that, they've built these excellent tools like NetQ and HostPack, which give you visibility far beyond what you would normally have uh, in the network operating systems we typically see today. When you put it all together, Cumulus is giving you the same level of flexibility that you'd find in the world's largest data centers. Now, as a special gift to our Network Collective listeners, Cumulus is offering a completely free ebook that walks you through the how and why you should be running BGP in your data centers. Now, BGP is one of those protocols, right? It's incredibly popular and it's incredibly powerful, but also can be intimidating to those who don't use it every day. This O'Reilly ebook written by Dinesh Dutt steps you through uh, some of the theory of operations and offers some really practical best practices and also talks about through some of the uh, some of the ways that BGP has been changed and influenced through open networking. Now, this is a really great resource, and you can get your absolutely free copy by going to cumulusnetworks.com slash networkcollectivebgp. Before we get back into the conversation, I just wanted to let our listeners know that Network Collective has partnered with Interop this year, and we're going to be at the conference. If you're going or thinking about going, we'd love to meet you, say hi, and give you a sticker or two, right? Or a business card if you're really excited. I mean, I could give you my business card. It's not that exciting, I promise. Jordan <laughs> wants to get rid of his business cards. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say, who, who are you talking about? We want to meet you, Jordan. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, so Russ will be hiding in his hotel room. Uh, Yvonne and I would love to meet you. <laughs> All right. So uh, also at the conference, we're going to be recording a couple episodes. Uh, so so while we're there, so just uh, keep an eye out for those. Uh, also, Interop's been awesome. They've been nice enough to extend a discount uh, to our listeners. If you're interested in going, you can use the code NET200 during the registration process and receive a $200 discount on an all-access or conference pass. So there's that. Uh, there's lots of great speakers this year, uh, including a number of people who have been guests on our show and maybe even a host or two. If interested, you can find all the info you need at interop.com. So let's get back to it, guys. Uh, <clears throat> so we're talking about resiliency within a site. Um, and so, you know, we've been talking about some of the hardware components. Is there anything else that we really should be considering when we're talking about resiliency within one site? Yeah, I think we should be thinking about the applications, too. You, um, oh, they don't matter. No, that's right. If we don't have users, we, our networks can be pristine. <laughs> you know what? My network is, runs best when I don't have to support any applications <laughs> at all. <laughs> nice and clean. Yep. <laughs> so, but I mean, a lot of times we on the networking side assume, first of all, that the that certain applications need, you know, very tight convergence times and need very, very good failover and stuff like this. And they don't necessarily, right? We can sometimes loosen up our requirements and make the network a little bit less complex. What, do you, what but, are you talking about? Every application owner that I've ever talked to, their application needs 100% uptime. And, and, and 100 millisecond convergence time off the network. No, no, no. 100 milliseconds is too long. 100%. That would be like eight nines. Come on now. That's not enough. I'm sorry. I am. I, I wish I was being facetious. The number of times I've heard it needs to be up 100 percent of the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. Of it's course. kind of ridiculous. 
But see, but see, part of the point of this is that we need to be able to articulate the complexity they're driving into the network by saying those types of things and being able to push back a little bit and say, hey, you know, really? You really want your network to fail because you've made it so brittle, because you've added so much garbage to it to make it, uh, try to make it, and, and this is a point we don't often think about, right, is that the more you try to make the network hardened, you are hardening the network, but then there's this word that everybody hates when I use it, it's ossification, right? Yeah. You I, 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 yeah, I think everyone hates it because I'm not sure that everyone knows what you mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> you make it really hard yeah. and inflexible. Yeah, exactly. That's no, right. I, mean, I mean, Jody, we know you're the smart one. Okay, we got it. You don't have to show <laughs> off. <laughs> no, but seriously, I mean, you, got, you have a good point. No, don't be quiet, Jody. Uh, <laughs> you've got a good point, right? I mean, it comes down to, you know, the, the more that we make it rigid in the sense of the way it has to operate, um, the more constraints that we put on it, the less flexibility we have, and that just leads to ossification. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and what happens with your network, instead of degrading gracefully and giving you a chance to work on it at 8 o'clock in the morning when you get up or 9 o'clock in the morning, you're at work anyway, it crashes and dies at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then you're sitting there on the phone with TAC at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the TAC engineer doesn't speak the same language you do. And you're tired, and they're tired, and you're trying to troubleshoot something that's like. No, I, I, I think the phrase you use there, the, the driving the complexity into the network, is absolutely spot on as well. Because we, I mean, the number of times that the, the lack of capability in an application for handling any type of type of failures becomes the network's problem to fix. Well, if this happens, the network needs to somehow magically make such and such happen. And so often we're not involved earlier in the process of developing an app, right? To be able to say, well, no, well, here are some more reasonable parameters you should be working around. Um, and in fact, I, I will say that uh, I had one a few years ago that was uh, an app that we did a failover. It was fantastically fast. And the app was upset because we'd failed over too quickly. And it didn't know that there'd been a failover. <laughs> And it just froze. <laughs> I mean, so for, for once, we got it right. We actually did too well. But a lot of the time, we have had to do insane solutions in order to meet some ridiculous requirement for an application that really you should be pushing back on the app and going, then rewrite it so it can cope with that, get, get with the real world. I think part of the problem we run into there is that sometimes the app isn't developed anywhere under the control of the business owner. And then they're saying, well, there's no way we can get the app developer to change it for us. And you guys control the network. So we need you to do it. And the problem is we want to help. So we allow that to happen once. And the next thing you know, it's our problem forever we for every heroes. application. We want to be heroes. We want the cape. So that's where I have a question for you all, because um, I've been wondering about uh, VMware's advertising for NSX. Oh, well, you can cluster between data centers, and you can even cluster into the cloud. Well, now you've got a WAN link that's not very reliable, might have latency, all sorts of problems, smack in the middle of sort of your logical backplane for uh, your controller. Is that a good thing? But NSX will fix all of that, doesn't it? Polish right. all of that? That's right. It's magic. It just works. It starts magic. with an S and a D. And if it's SD anything, it's magic. It's magic. it's magic. It abstracts all those things. Physics no longer applies. So I, this is, this is, <laughs> this is, your guys are 100% right and 100% wrong. 
And, like, so you're, you're all correct, right? You're correct in the fact that, you know, a lot of these things can be solved in the application. We talk about this, you know, like when we talk about extending layer two, which is we kind of hinted at this here just a second ago. Um, and we won't do a whole show on this, I promise, because this is one of my favorite soapboxes. But the, um, you know, the, the idea is we extend layer two because the application can't handle a layer three failover. When in reality, like DNS, and we're getting into multi-site here, but the DNS is most likely fast enough for most applications to fail over. Um, or <laughs> distributed applications, like when you run them in the cloud, the idea is there's, the application can have multiple IP addresses that are front-ended by something or whatever. The, the idea that, you know, a single IP address has to live on forever and ever and be accessible 100% of the time is part of the problem. So that's where you're right. Where you're wrong is the fact that you will never, ever, ever get applications owners to change it. It's just not going to happen. So, I mean, we can talk about it all we want, but I, and this is, this is cynical Jordan high. Um, it's just not going to change. Uh, like, <laughs> well, this is, this is why we have firewalls is we don't trust the programmers. And now with DevOps, the programmers are supposed to do all sorts of wonderful things in their code, including security and operational friendliness. I don't see it. I see it going down the same path. Uh, you're going to have very well uh, 10% or some number of developers that are very good at what they do, and they do that stuff that they're supposed to do. And then you got the other 90% who didn't get the memo. Well, I mean, firewalls to protect the internet from my users, but maybe that's just <laughs> <laughs> you. You turn them around. <laughs> that's hilarious. I mean, like, I, I can feel Russ, like, staring through me right now because, you know, Russ works in an environment where, where writing distributed applications is the default. And, that, and that's what I meant at the top of the show, that the solutions in a, in a web scale environment are likely going to look different than the enterprise. And maybe they do get there. But, man, my, my hope for the efficiency and functionality of enterprise application development to change is, I mean, like, it, the number might be bigger than zero, but hardly. Well, that um, actually raises a very good point when you're talking about enterprise application development. And we, we make assumptions that a lot of applications are developed within the enterprise. Now, I, I tend to work in the smaller enterprise where they buy it, they don't build it. And when yeah. they buy it, they're purely at the mercy of whoever developed it who doesn't necessarily care about their individual environment. But see, I think, but I think that's, that's a market problem though, right, to me. Mm -hmm. That's what a problem is. of every company says I'm at the mercy of my vendor and nobody says, all right, enough of being at the mercy of my vendor. You're causing me, you're causing 10,000 customers pain because you won't go back and build your application the way it should be built. But hold, but hold on a second. They're not. This is, this is the whole point of the conversation, or at least what I'm saying here. They're not causing 10,000 customers pain because we're solving the problems in the network. <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, we're solving the problem. So they're not causing the 10,000 customers pain. There's might be, you know, and this also speaks back to the fact that engineering is like a dying art in the enterprise. It's, it's not as prevalent as what it used to be. We've had a couple of shows talking about that. And that is, and, and okay, you can argue whether or not it's Better true. I think it's, I think it's true. And if that's true, I don't know that there are enough people in the enterprise who understand the implications to go back to their vendor and say, this is going to cause me problems or that I shouldn't be solving this in network. I should be solving this in the application. And so, a, yeah, in the medical community, that's a real problem. And I'm thinking there's a telephony effect here because the person buying the application may be totally uh, different than the IT group. So in a hospital, the one I've seen is medical monitoring that requires layer two adjacency. In a large hospital, that's really ugly. You don't yeah. want to do that. 
Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, we're we're sharing state between two data centers. We no longer have separate or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. fault domains. We no longer have fault isolation. And now all of a sudden, all of it is dependent upon that data center interconnect, whatever technology. You pick it, whether it's SD, if it's VXLAN, if it's OTV, I mean, you pick it, doesn't matter what it is. We now have some level of shared state. That's right. That's right. right. We have entanglement. So we actually have, we've built these layers because we think it's going to give us something. And in the end, we entangle the layers so that they're interconnected to each other all of a sudden. And, oh, guess what? They're not separate failure domains any longer. Oops. (laughs) So there's, there's a general concept here um, that I think is, is really helpful to think about these things. And I think we've, you know, we've used other terms for it. And, and I think there are other parts of our industry and other industries that use some different terminology. And it's, it's speaking of coupling, you have tight coupling and loose coupling, yeah. right? And, and so a, a loosely coupled system is a system that's distributed. It's harder to coordinate action across a loosely coupled system because you have many independent actors that are acting on their own with some level of shared state. Right, some limited level of shared state where we're trying to act in concert, but we have to we have to share things back and forth. Tightly coupled systems have their state shared very, very tightly together. They can get a lot done. So the efficiency is there to accomplish a lot. But the problem is, is that when tightly coupled systems fail, they fail holistically. Right. So when we talk about two data centers that are tightly coupled, one data center doesn't melt down. Both data centers melt down. Right. And when we're talking yeah. about disaster recovery, we should be looking to separate state as much as possible. We want failure domains isolated. And and so any level of data center interconnect, any level, even routing, right? Now routing is looser than something like extending layer two, but even routing to the data center causes some level of shared state. My routing table can become messed up causing some sort of failure that exists in both sites. And so there's, you know, when you think about the problem of resiliency and you think about, How, how my systems interact with each other, you have to think about how they're coupled, how tightly they're coupled. This also goes back to, the, to John's point earlier about individual systems and the fact of layering and interaction surfaces is the fact that those things are tightly coupled. They're having to, they have to operate in unison for them to work. And if they don't, it all fails. It all just comes crashing down. So. I, yeah. I think, um, you, you, so you've mentioned that a new data center interconnect had to come up eventually. It was, oh, it has it was to, right? We're talking about disaster recovery, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But but that does come back down to the, the issue of disaster recovery rather than simply just intra-site resiliency, right? The idea of, okay, so I have a second site. and So when John walked into the first site, you want to make sure you have another site. Absolutely. I, I, I'm actually, <laughs> yeah, Carlos pay me to go visit customers. Um, <laughs> so, but, but there is there is a problem here, which is that in order for your disaster recovery site to be geographically sufficiently far away from your primary site to actually be safe from the kind of um, uh, spread of impact that will usually happen, well, could happen with a large event, let's say it's a weather event, right? You don't want to be 10 miles down the road. The problem with that is now we get latency between sites. And now we start getting all kinds of application problems. All these apps that sync beautifully in the cluster beautifully and databases that back up great across you know, 10 milliseconds of WAN, suddenly it all goes wrong over 50. Yeah. Um, and that's another, again, it's another protocol challenge, another complexity to try and deal with. Um, but it's kind of an important one to think about. So are you saying that snow and it weather is a disaster? It is, it is if you live in Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> where was that picture out of the Carolinas where it snowed an inch and like 
cars were on fire. And, you know, like, I remember that. I remember that so vividly coming from Pennsylvania, like snowing an inch is nothing. I mean, we aren't the, the heaviest snow state in the world, but man, we get it pretty often. And like, this was like a dusting and the whole, the whole place, like people were standing outside their cars. Everyone was in the ditch and it's true. It's what, what you can handle. You have to factor that in. So, I mean, I, I'd like to talk about some, you know, some DLR concepts because we kind of got there. So this is multi-site resiliency or disaster recovery. And those are, those are similar, but actually different topics, right? So I think DR is more holistic. DR comes from more of the business perspective. How do we continue operations? Um, and technology is a component of that. So technology resiliency is part of the part of a DR plan. It's not all of a DR plan. Um, and and in that, there's there's a lot of things to consider. So I don't know what what are some of your if you guys had to rattle off a few things that you think are critical to consider when considering a DR strategy. What are some things you have to do? So what, let let me. Um... Let me add to DR. Let me add BC, which is business, oh, business continuity. Yep. So, and and unfortunately, and the reason I mentioned that is, you know, BCDR is is what I see as being what you're trying to put in place. Too often, we end up focused. The business ends up focused on the DR side, without ever figuring out how on earth the business is going to continue after you failed everything over, assuming your people can get access to that site to fail everything over. Right. I mean, so some practical examples, right? Let's, let's dig into this for a second, right? Business continuity would include like, where are your people going to sit? Like if you're, if you have a primary site, that's where you have 200 employees and a plane crashes into it or name your disaster, whatever, where do those people go? Like it's, it's great that you can have the systems online, but do they work from home? I mean, that's a valid potential strategy, but do you have the mechanisms to support that? Do they know, can you communicate with them? Like what, how do you do those things? Yeah. I've actually argued that point with some cert- two certified business continuity experts, supposedly. Company was <laughs> going to take 300 critical employees and put them at a DR, at a coop site. And my next question was, well, suppose some other companies are also having a disaster. You don't have reserved seats. You have to share with whoever else is having a disaster. So you're lucky if you get five seats, not three hundred. Right. If you oh, have well, some sort of like regional, someplace. yeah, yeah. Well, they can drive someplace else. Well, what if mobility is part of the problem, and right. the whole spill, beltway shut down, whatever? People don't think wide when it comes to disaster. <laughs> they don't think they think disaster is one of the following few things that affect our business. They don't think it could be anything. Well, we've assumed that that wasn't going to happen, so it won't. Exactly. So how close are you to a fault line? Oh, we didn't think about that. Well, you should think about that. Water level in Manhattan and Brooklyn? Sure. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, business continuity is part of it. So, I mean, getting the technology up is all fancy. That's great if you can do that. And if you can do it fast enough that it's too fast for the application, you know, applause. Um, But it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't doesn't really matter if nobody can access it or there's, you know, there's no way to let people know. Um, you know, there, there's things like uh, procedure. It sounds really, really boring. But the idea is that if you've never actually walked through standing up the DR site or going through the DR procedure, you don't really have. You can't make it up as you go. It's no, you can't. A disaster waiting to happen. Well, so, yeah, another disaster yeah. waiting to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. Again. I've seen it. It doesn't work. Winging it just flat out doesn't work. Right. So it's like some kind of testing matters. Yeah. yeah. Procedures and testing. You have to be able to make sure like you can't depend on a person. Right. So if you have the, you know, the rock star network engineer who can do everything. 
Oh, stop it, Russ. If you have the rock star <laughs> network engineer who can do everything, your whole plan is dependent upon the fact that they can turn it up on the fly. They might be able to do that. They might be that much of a rock star. but Unless they get hit by a bus on the way there because of a disaster. Exactly. And so you have to plan for the idea that maybe you don't have the most qualified people doing the tasks. And so your instruction set shouldn't be written for, you know, a top tier network engineer. Maybe it should be written for your help desk. It should be step by step. If, if, yep. you're, if you're doing disaster recovery, you're likely to be doing it for hours on end. You like to be very busy, very tired, very stressed. You don't want to have to think on your feet. You would just want to literally follow them to follow the dumb instructions. It should be instructions 101. Right. There shouldn't be any question about it. And and that's hard. I mean, writing that level of process is, is not simple. Now I've got, it sounds like it should be. No, I've gone through this with a couple of companies and, and one of them I'm thinking about specifically who went through this and they did the whole business continuity DR. They actually did a really good job with it. Um, and we, and it was, it was interesting because we would do, you know, we started off with like tabletop sessions where we would walk through it. And it's like, can you explain what you're supposed to be doing here? If we hand this, if we hand this network instruction set to the server team, can they explain what they're supposed to be doing right here? Right? Like looking for those assumptions, those things, filling in the gaps of the ideas that I know what I meant to say when writing down this procedure. I know what I meant, but maybe I didn't communicate it in a way that everybody really understands. And you have to be able to identify those things. And the, and the problem is that that never comes out unless you're actually testing. That's one of those critical things. You also have to go across stovepipes. I worked with an organization that decided that the most critical apps had to be up in one hour. They hadn't talked to the network team. Network team uh, had written their procedure on the back of an envelope. It took them 48 hours to get the network up, and it was a small network in the first time in the most recent trial on the road. Not good. And, and don't forget things like internet access and telephones. And other things like that, too, right? I mean, we tend to forget, oh, I'm moving it to this big data center. They've got enough compute. But if you're hosting a website out of there, or if you're hosting a call center out of there. There's a lot of details like VPN licenses. If you have to license the number of seats, you might not have enough seats for remote access. Um, one of the other things I thought of in prepping for this is um, facilities tends to be the Achilles heel. Um, power. Do you have sufficient cooling? You have, uh, is your power really redundant? You have two generators. When was the last time somebody tested them? And if they're right side by side with the fuel tanks right next to them, they're all vulnerable to one bad actor or something mm -hmm. could happen. Something about somebody trying to test generators and then catching on fire and taking the entire data center out? I think we heard mm -hmm. that recently, right? <laughs> <laughs> what did that happen? Yeah, let's not actually say where that happened. But yeah, I remember that off the top of my head. Somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that's a bad day. Um, and <laughs> the other things you need to think about, and we've kind of hinted at them because we kind of just like, you know, again, you know, gently segued into multi-site resiliency. Um, but you have to think about what that that topology or the way you do it actually is there. So we talked about, you know, some of the, the, the pros and cons are mostly cons of layer two <clears throat> data center interconnect. But there I mean, there's, pros. I wouldn't say that. There are a couple of pros. <laughs> You solve you solve some application problems for some some application developers. That's a pro. I'm not saying it's a good one. Um, but you know, then you have the then you, then you have the idea of active active data centers versus active passive, mm -hmm. right? You have the idea of what is the failover look over? Is it an automated routing failover, or is it something that we manually do? 
Because we talked about earlier, if, if an automated process happens too quickly without some sort of dampening process in it, we can have flapping back and forth between data centers. We think about systems and, and multiple data centers. Okay, so are you going to replicate? And if you replicate data, are you replicating the system state? Does that mean you're replicating an IP address? So now, do, you, do we have to change IPs? Is that something we have to script? Do we have a standby system that just stood up at the secondary where the data is replicated, but the system itself is fully resilient all the time? I mean, there's all kinds of components in how you actually develop this. And, and every, yeah. every, every solution I've seen has been slightly different mm-hmm. depending on what the business needs are. There's a requirements question there too, because if you're doing replication or something and you're going to spin up the disaster site as an atomic unit, so to speak, then you can play the presto, the subnets over there dead. Yeah. But if, and I've been seeing this increasingly, management wants to take a business unit or part of the data center and spin it up at the DR site. And because it's sharing subnets, that's where you get a driver for layer two data center interconnect. Right. So we're talking about granularity. Mm-hmm. Are we failing over a whole data center at the time? Are we mm-hmm. failing over a subnet at a time? Or do we want hosts that can exist on the same subnet at two different data centers? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the, the more granular you get, the more complex it gets. The more state has to be shared between the two data centers. And if you want to so talk how active, active how far do you take it? Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's a number of technology services. Do we do we replicate one to one? Is it fifty percent of what we normally can do? Is that enough? Like, these are so hard in, questions. In, in in database terms, do you actually not? So, if you if you have transactional systems someplace, do you actually not commit the transaction until both data centers have reported that the transaction is written? Right. That's, that's where you're talking about, like an active active data center, where it's possible yeah, right. that both systems could be operational at the same time. I mean, you run into that because you run like any cast level services, right? Like where multiple systems, but that's not, you know, it happens, but it's not super common in enterprise. So yeah, are you, are you thinking about that? The transactional state of the database? Um, Being active, active solves that whole problem of not having equipment standing there idle and someone looking going, why did I buy that? Yeah, it's a machine that goes bing. It also solves the failover problem. If you're using both systems in essentially as a cluster handling half of your activity, then you know both of them are online. You know both of them are handling things every day. And should one of them fail, well, the other one was working the whole time. You've you've cut your capacity in half, but it's still working. (laughs) This is we should record that. I mean, this is the pitch, right, for distributed systems is the idea that I will never lose or have to fail over. I just lose capacity, mm-hmm. right? That, that's the same, the same argument for a fabric, right? Like I, yeah. I just lose capacity if I lose a spine. I lose right. access ports if I lose right. a leaf, right? Like right. That's, that's the idea. Um, and so, yes, I, in a perfect world, we'd all be distributed systems and, and no stretch layer two, everything layer three failover. And <laughs> well, that's where web scale world. and any task are kind of nirvana. But it's going to take a while to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> if in, well, if well, what's so? What's rather funny is is that a lot of enterprises, enterprises are going to the cloud, and in going to the cloud, they are having to move to applications that are designed for what's basically a hyperscaler environment with containers and all of this stuff built into the applications. And now they're going, well, now that all my applications are being written, you know, I wouldn't do this for my own networking guys, but hey, since I'm moving it to the cloud, now I have to do it. 
because I don't, I don't think I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're headed there. I agree with that. Yeah. I think I think the initial push to cloud a number of years ago was all about oh, I could just pay someone else to handle this. It's going to be cheaper. I don't have to worry about all the expertise. Then we find out oh, wait a minute, it's just somebody else's servers. When I don't change my operational state, it literally is just someone else's servers. And the difference is that they have to make a profit on that infrastructure, and I don't. Right. So, so it, it has to be more expensive. They might get an economy of scale, but at best case, at best case, it's equal. At worst case, they have to make a profit. I have to pay them something. We saw kind of a lot of people retracting from that. I think we've kind of been there the past year, year and a half saying, oh, wait a minute, this big, heavy application probably doesn't make sense in the cloud. And I think people are starting to get smart about what they put out there. Now, how many applications are actually being rewritten? I don't know how many internal applications are getting rewritten. I think that what we're seeing is more and more off-the-shelf applications are being rewritten to be cloud-powered. Right, and, because and they then, have to be. Because they, because have, they to be. have to be, right? Yes, to compete. Right, or we pay for it. So like the, the best example of, of a cloud, you know, is software as a service is like Office 365. I don't know anyone who liked managing their own exchange servers. I'm just going to pay someone to do it and it's done. Well, of course, on the back end, Microsoft is handling that in a much smarter, much more distributed, much more capable way than I'd ever be able to do in my own data center. So for something like that, it might be worth paying the extra money and just yeah. be done with it, have it. I don't have to worry That's about right. it. Now, the dynamic scale of cloud data centers comes into play. So if we've got a disaster recovery site that we kind of assume is another data center we've stood up somewhere, using cloud services as your disaster recovery infrastructure isn't a bad idea because you can leave the thing off most of the time or just have pieces of it up and running to keep your replication happening. And then you're really only paying for a skeleton of an infrastructure until such time as you need it. And then you can bring the whole thing up and pay for it on demand. Potentially. So I guess the rest of the crowd doesn't need it at the same time. I was well, going to that. That's the problem. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, New York City is taken out by a big snowstorm coming up, a nor'easter coming up the East Coast. And uh, have you been watching my weather report? We're supposed to get like over a, <laughs> over a foot of snow tomorrow. And then, and then, boom, everybody wants to be in the western region of AWS. And uh, well, that didn't work out very well. <laughs> All right, guys, I think we're getting a little bit long here. I think, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure we can continue on for another five episodes on this topic. So we'll never be able to be uh, comprehensive in one show. Uh, so I think we're going to we're going to stop there and we might uh, we might pick it up again if there's uh, if there's enough reason to. Yeah, but be, but be, but everybody tell us if, another show. <laughs> <laughs> tell us all the things that we missed, all the ways that we were completely oblivious to the things that matter to your DR strategy. And we'll talk about those next. Uh, but, right. but before we go, I want to give everyone an opportunity to uh, tell them, tell you where you could find them. I just did the Yvonne thing. Yeah. <laughs> I tripped right <laughs> over that. Uh, You're being conditioned. The, I am. <laughs> I'm being influenced. So uh, Jody, Jody, why don't you start? Why don't you tell people where they can find you? Oh, where they can find me? Well, I tweet randomly at, at Ghost in the Net. Uh, I limpet blog on various sites, uh, Packet Pushers, the uh, Cisco support community, the Cisco blogs, a few other places. I am slowly but surely putting my own blog site together, but it's the old, the cobbler's children have no shoes and my customers need stuff. So that will happen eventually. But and they pay now, money. And they pay money. Yeah. <laughs> me paying money. And, you know, it, it yeah. adds up. So uh, for now, best way to reach me is hit me on Twitter at Ghost in the Net. All right. How about you, John? I'm uh, occasionally on Twitter uh, at Mr. Tugs, um, but uh, trying to blog more at movingpackets.net. 
And every now and again, I pop up elsewhere, just out IT and places like that. But excellent. Yeah, that's right. Pete? Uh, I blog at netcraftsman.com and occasionally on Cisco Perspectives. Uh, Twitter, it's at the Houston Peter J. Joseph Welcher. All right. Wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long Twitter handle, Pete. <laughs> he was he was being phonetic about it. Now, well, well, obviously, there's bios for everybody on the site. So if you want to find a link, just go to networkcollective.com. So, Russ, uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you? you? You can always find me at the Network Collective. You can also find me at Roll11.tech, which is my gathering blog where I gather everything I write everywhere else so that you don't have to go find me everywhere else because I write just about everywhere else in the world at this point. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, but don't DM me. Just don't. I, I, I ignore DMs on Twitter. I really don't even log into Twitter anybody, so it's okay. So but actually, you, you, you can go call him all sorts of names and make fun of him on Twitter, and he'll never know. I, I never know. <laughs> I'm currently assassinating his character on Twitter. He has no idea. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much left to assassinate. <laughs> All right. I'm Jordan Martin. You can find me at BCJordo on Twitter, my blog, jordanmartin.net. Uh, if you like this episode, which would be miraculous if you did, I'm kidding. Our guests are awesome. Um, <laughs> if you like this episode, you can find uh, more great content at our website, enetworkcollective.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at NetCollectivePC. We're on Facebook, uh, on LinkedIn, all the regular places. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you'd like to uh, chat about. Um, so yeah, go follow, subscribe, and we'll see you next time.